says, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And Father, we humbly ask as we open the word of God now that by your Holy Spirit, you just help us to be attentive and receptive to what you are trying to say to us through your spirit's ministry as we continue now in our worship. Lord, you know the weakness of our flesh. Please take away from us distractions in our hearts and minds. Lord, minimize anything that would just cause our attention to be diverted away from you and the sensitivity to what you want to say to us. Lord, very personally, through your still small voice speaking directly to our heart this morning. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. We ask you to bless your word now, teach us and minister to us by your spirit. And we ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, how we respond and how we relate to people is a very, very important thing. And in the same way that it is incredibly important how we respond to people or how we relate to people, I would think it's fair to say that it is all the more vital how we choose to respond and relate to God, to the person of God himself, and particularly to the person of God's Holy Spirit when he is at work amongst us, when he is trying to speak something to us in a personal way, or he's trying to minister to us in an individual way. And it makes a total difference regarding how we respond to God, then how we then act as a person, how we behave as a person, how we speak as a person, what we do, what we don't do, how we respond to God makes all the difference in the world. The text we're going to look at this morning here really, I think, gives us a good contrast. It gives us a contrast of resisting the Holy Spirit of God And it also shows to us, in contrast, someone yielding to the Holy Spirit of God. People responding in two different ways. One group, we'll see the religious leaders, they don't desire to follow Jesus Christ. They don't desire to submit to Jesus Christ or live for Jesus Christ. And we see them in this text very clearly resisting the Holy Spirit. Stephen, on the other hand, is a man who's a faithful servant of the Lord. Stephen loves the Lord. Stephen wants to live for Jesus. And as a result of that, we see Stephen here fully yielded to the influence and the authority of the Holy Spirit ruling over his life. And we see the different responses that lead to drastically different behaviors and experiences, whether one is resisting the Holy Spirit 
or whether one is yielding to the Holy Spirit and his work in their life. Remember the backdrop is it's very important to kind of where we jump in in verse 54 here. We saw last time Stephen was powerfully witnessing to people regarding the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it seems there in his local synagogue that he had gotten saved. He had a born-again experience with Jesus Christ. He came alive and realized Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And as a result of that, he couldn't resist sharing his faith with other people. And as he's zealously doing that, those in the local synagogue didn't like him evangelizing among their worship gathering. We're fine with God. Stop trying to convert us. We like our religiosity. Stop pushing us into this more intimate relationship thing with Jesus you're talking about. So they began, it says, dispute with him. And it seemed that they were trying to resist Stephen. But we saw last time together in chapter 7, uh, in chapter 6, verse 10, it says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. So not able to overcome him. It tells us they then remember, it says, put together a group of false witnesses who started then accusing Stephen of blaspheming God and blaspheming against the temple of God and blaspheming against Moses, their great leader of the past and against the law of God. And they arrested him, brought him into custody and brought him before the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council of that day. And they started interrogating Stephen for these charges of blasphemy that were false accusations. The high priest then said, are these accusations true? Are you indeed blaspheming God and Moses in the temple? And they gave Stephen the platform and he took advantage of the opportunity. And we saw for a lengthy section in chapter 7 from verse really 1 to 53, he gave a biblical defense of what he truly believed. And he kind of rehearsed the history of the nation of Israel, if you remember. He went through the history of the nation of Israel and his predominant point in his biblical message really was to convey how God continually throughout history tried to work among his people. He again and again tried to be gracious to them, to reach out to them. He sent continual deliverers to them to help them and to spare them and yet every time God would send a representative to them they had this track record of always resisting God's deliverers of always rejecting God's work and God would send another and every time they had this history of resisting God and rejecting God and Stephen was conveying this to them that they are now, as Stephen was saying, just doing this once again in their resistance of God's ultimate deliverer his son, Jesus Christ. And Stephen says, there's been a history of this. And once again, now has God has sent Jesus to you and you're now resisting his own son who came to save you from your sins and give you eternal life. Look with me at the end of chapter seven, verse 51 to 53, before we go into 54, Stephen here made his application point. This is what we closed with last time. This was his application point. Verse 51, you stiff necked, incredibly stubborn and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Your heart is hard and your ears are clogged. You don't want to listen. He said, you always, look what he says, resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so now he says to you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that is Jesus Christ. 
of whom you, he says, makes it personal, now have become betrayers and murderers who've received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So Stephen had no qualms with speaking the truth very directly to people. I mean, you want to talk about kind of stepping on some toes. This is like kind of like a person standing in the presence of the you know, United States Supreme Court uh, and just laying these just really strong accusations and saying, look, all of you are resisting God and you're you know, quenching the work God is trying to do among you by his spirit and you're rejecting his son, Jesus Christ. You want to talk about some heavy conviction and exposure to guilt that these people would be experiencing. So the question becomes, as we carry on now, how are they going to respond to this? Because you could probably hear a pin drop in that room at that moment when Stephen said, you are stiff-necked and stubborn, hard-hearted people who are closing your ears to God and you're resisting his Holy Spirit. How are they going to respond? What are they going to do to the conviction, the guilt they sense in their spirit regarding the condition of the truth that God's just said to them? Well, look in verse 54. Here's their response. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him. So hearing the truth about themselves brought conviction of sin and guilt, yet their response is what? They're greatly offended. Their, their anger, they become very defensive and upset. First note their conviction of sin and guilt. It says, hearing the truth of God's word, Stephen's just spoken, knowing that they're guilty in their condition before a holy God, it says there, look at it in verse 54, it says they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Now, whenever the Bible uses the word heart, understand it's not referring to the physical muscle or organ that pumps the blood through our circulatory system. It's always a reference from God's perspective to the inner person. That is to the deepest part of who you are, the innermost part of your being. You could say the epicenter of your desires and your will. We might call it our conscience, we say sometimes. The heart is the master control center of every human being. The master control center that then is the place of operation, the wellspring that influences and guides and directs our behaviors and our attitudes and our actions and our words and all that we do. It's what sort of becomes the spring that determines your personal choices and your actions. And that's why the Bible has much to say about the condition of our heart. In fact, in just the next chapter, 8, verse 21, it tells us there that Philip makes this accusation. He says to an individual, your heart is not right in the sight of God. Again, who's concerned about the condition of our heart? God is. And I can hide the condition of my heart from you just like you can from me. But you can't hide the condition of your heart before an all-seeing, all-knowing God who you're going to give account to is your creator as I will one day. And, and there Philip says, here's the problem. Your heart is not right. Your heart's not right in the sight of God. And the condition of our heart matters to God. And that is why God wants to work in a person's heart to rule on the throne of our heart and to at times change our heart if our heart's not in a right condition. It is in the heart, the innermost part of your being. That's where God speaks to us. 
God speaks to you in the, the strong but yet still small voice of your conscience where you can sense there's something inner that's being communicated to the deepest part of my being. That's where God speaks. God speaks to the heart. God communicates to our heart in the inner man and that conscience we might say. And when hearing the truth of God's voice speaking to their hearts here, it says in the text, they were cut to the heart. The Greek there literally speaks of something being sawn apart or separated. The idea there is as they heard God's truth and God's voice speaking directly to their heart, it was like a piercing experience in their heart. It was like something sawing open their, their heart and just laying it bare and causing them to sense an inward sort of conviction. You know, we, we say things sometimes as we talk about people, you know, or we, we, somebody says something to us and who hasn't kind of be themselves said or maybe you've heard somebody will say something to kind of lay out a really hard truth and somebody will go, ouch, right? You, you kind of, ow, ooh, man, that was... Wow, that was brutally honest, right? Well, that's the idea times 10,000. When God speaks to your heart, it's like being cut to the heart. It's like a surgical procedure, not physically, but just like a heart surgeon would open a person's chest cavity and lay open their heart and reveal the bad condition of their heart that needs to be worked upon that's what God does by his spirit when God speaks to a heart. It's like he just lays open your heart at some point. And anyone who's experienced that, we know that, man, it just, and God cuts to the heart. That is, he, he kind of just cuts away all the excuses. He cuts away all the small talk and trivial things that we do to kind of just, you know, hide the fact of not wanting to deal with real issues, what's going on inside of ourselves. And when God speaks, man, it just cuts away all the nonsense and like a surgeon, our condition is exposed. And what's being described here is what we often call conviction of sin. Just like when you convict somebody, if they've been you know, guilty of a, a crime or they've murdered someone and, and the verdict comes down from the judge, the conviction, this person is legitimately guilty. That's the idea, conviction of sin. That God, who's a loving God, but yet a righteous and a just God, brings conviction like a judge of our soul to the condition of our heart and our guilt is exposed that we've all failed God in different ways and we have a lever of guilt. So the problem then becomes we have a decision to make like they here did. When you are convicted of sin and cut to the heart by hearing God's truth, you can either A, humbly accept that reality and want to respond to God properly or you can on the other side, the other option is you can pridefully get angry and get offended and not like the fact that somebody just told you that you're guilty. And this is what we see these religious leaders, sadly, from the Sanhedrin Council, this is what we see them doing here. The latter, they pridefully get very angry and they get offended. That's why it says in the text there in verse 54, there's their response. It's pretty picturesque. They gnashed at him with their teeth. The picture there is like a growling dog. Just, you know, like a, just a ferocious animal. They literally just gnashed at him with their teeth. They were so angry. They became so furious and deeply offended that they, they were personally not only just defensive, they were literally infuriated that Stephen had just spoke the truth to them. And boy, the, the reality is we can get like that as people. 
Sometimes it's hard hearing the truth. And when we don't like what we're hearing and it maybe kind of disrupts our comfort zone, sometimes we can do that. We can actually get angrily offended to the point where we're so angry, we almost enraged, we become furious. We just want to stop that person from what they're saying. And here, this is the idea. They begin to gnash at him with their teeth. It's a picture of just greatly being angry. And here becomes a fitting illustration, as I said, and what Stephen just mentioned, of resisting the Holy Spirit. That's what they're doing here. They're cut to the heart, but then they gnash at him with their teeth because they're resisting what the Holy Spirit of God is trying to say to them inwardly. Remember Jesus, when he spoke of the Holy Spirit, he called the Spirit the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. That is one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit of God is to testify the truth to us, to tell us what is true about ourselves. Imagine that. God actually loves us enough to actually tell us the truth about ourselves. And the Holy Spirit of God conveys to us the truth about ourselves and what that means for us and what God says and what God expects of us, what God would require of us. He breaks through the lies in my life. He breaks through my pride and my self-deception. And he just tells me the hard truth that I need to hear. And that's meant for my good. It's not meant to anger me. It's meant to liberate me and to bring me into God's will and best. God wants to convince every person what is true spiritually so that they might agree with God, that they might submit to experiencing God's best and the power of God's spirit working what is good for them. However, if we choose to stubbornly exercise our free will and refuse what God is saying, God honestly respects our freedom to be able to do that. Again, love grants choice. I know this is harsh to say, but I'm going to say it for sake of clarity. God won't rape your conscience. God won't force himself upon you. Love does not do that. Love grants freedom. Love grants an opportunity to willingly cooperate and respond. And God will persist. God will woo. God will reach. Jesus will knock on the door of a person's heart. But God ultimately allows you to choose if you will yield and will allow you the opportunity that if you want to reject what God is telling you, if a person wants to resist what the Holy Spirit is conveying to them about their need of Jesus Christ for salvation, they have the freedom to do that. And if we stubbornly refuse God's offer and resist, let me just say lovingly, that's a foolish response to the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the fool says in his heart, no to God. And this is the idea here. Those who resist the voice of the Holy Spirit, who is trying to convince everyone in humanity throughout the process of their life that they are sinful, that there's no difference between them or any mass murderer or evil dictator, that we all are equally sinful and guilty before God. And that means that we deserve punishment for our sin before a holy God, but yet God in his love made a way of being forgiven and pardoned so that we can be spared from hell and have access into eternal life in heaven after we die. And the way that has happened is not by God saying, if you do good enough things, eventually I'll kind of let you off the hook. It's happened by God not sparing his own son and giving his best and letting Jesus come to live righteously like I can and then Jesus be punished for me 
Jesus was punished for you on that cross for your personal sins and after dying rose from the dead and now he is the one who can forgive our sins. He's the only one who can spare me from hell and give me entrance and access into heaven if I'm willing to receive that gift that he's offering to me. But it's something that's extended to me in the love of God and to stubbornly refuse what God's spirit is trying to say to us to bring us into that condition, listen, is a pathway towards a very dark end. And it is ultimately just refusing eternal life with God. This morning, please hear me, if you are not genuinely saved by Jesus Christ yet, I caution you, perhaps it's because for whatever reason, you are resisting the Holy Spirit's communication to your heart telling you that this is what needs to happen for you, that you need to ask and experience Jesus's salvation for yourself, that you can't just gradually get yourself right for heaven. Jesus has to save you and only Jesus can bring you into heaven. And I encourage you, listen, please don't resist the Holy Spirit of truth if he's trying to tell you that. Agree with him. Humble yourself. Agree with him. Here, these religious leaders, sadly, they just become so angry in verse 54. They gnash their teeth at Stephen when they hear this. Now, watch the contrast as we go into 55. In contrast to the religious leaders in their resistance of the Spirit, rejecting Christ, now we picture Stephen here. We see a faithful servant of the Lord, and he's the opposite. He's fully yielded to the Holy Spirit. Here's our contrast, verse 55. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen, who loved Jesus, who's living fully surrendered to Jesus in his life, he's described here in verse 55 as being full of the Holy Spirit. It pictures a condition that God intends for each one of his children to be experiencing in their life. It describes a condition God intends for us. Now understand, the Bible teaches very clearly that at the day a person prays and exercises their faith and calls upon Jesus for salvation and accepts Christ as their Savior and Lord, the Bible tells us at that moment we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit dwells and resides permanently inside the life of every believer in Jesus Christ. That when you accept Jesus, that's part of the experience of being born spiritually. That's what happens. The Spirit of God comes inside your life and your dead spirit's made alive and now you have a communion with God as His Spirit literally takes up residence. And in this amazing way, God actually dwells inside of His children and His Spirit lives within us and is with us to be our helper in the spiritual life and having fellowship with God. Yet God desires that the Christian who's already in a sense indwelt and filled if in that sense with the Spirit, that we would be living, he says, full of the Holy Spirit. And the indication there simply, and we've talked about this before, is basically a reference to the Holy Spirit living inside of you having full control over your life. He already lives within you, 
But it's not a matter of, oh Lord, I need more of the Holy Spirit. It's really a matter of that, Lord, I need the Holy Spirit to have more of me. I need the Holy Spirit to have full control over my life. That I wouldn't be, in a sense, in any way, kind of quenching the Holy Spirit, trying to rule and direct me, but that I would be fully yielded to the Holy Spirit. He dwells inside of you if you are a Christian, but a Spirit-filled Christian is a biblical reference to a follower of Jesus who's living fully under the control of the Spirit, as God wants us to. That we're fully yielded, that we're letting our life to the fullest extent be under the control of the Spirit working in us. We're walking in the Spirit. We're being led of the Spirit. And, and this is God's heart and intention for the Christian in regards to how we respond to His Spirit. Now, this incredible scene unfolds with Stephen here in verse 55. As God knows, because he's has foreknowledge, that Stephen is about to be brutally murdered, as we've read in our text, stoned to death, murdered for his faithful witness of Christ, God, knowing that's about to happen in a matter of moments, gives his servant here this wonderful spiritual revelation to encourage his soul in hardship. It's almost as if God pulls back the veil, separating the natural temporal realm and allows him to see into the spiritual and the eternal realm. You see it there in verse 55? It says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. God gave him the capacity somehow. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen kind of gets a peek behind the curtain, a preview of coming attractions. He gets to see the realm of heaven in this moment here. And it says he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. That is, God enabled him to see the eternal dimension and all the brilliant glory and all the wonderful experience that was awaiting him. He saw all the beauty of his glorious future with God that awaited him. And after a life of dedication, of serving the Lord and being a faithful witness, even here he's going to suffer to a great degree and die, God graciously blesses his servant in this last moment to let him have a peek, to let him see what was coming. What an incredible encouragement, would you agree, that must have been to Stephen's soul. To be able to see that reality, what peace and joy must have flooded his soul as he gazed upon the glory of God. In a sense, he was saying, Stephen, see, it's all real. Everything you believed in, everything you lived for, everything you sacrificed for, it's real. It's waiting for you, Stephen. And I can imagine this must have been such an encouragement. Notice also, however, in verse 55 there, what Stephen took notice of. It kind of seems it gripped his attention. It says that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, after the completed work of Jesus dying on the cross, raising from the dead and ascending back into heaven from when he came, the New Testament teaches that Jesus went back into heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God there with his father. The right hand is the place of favor. And, and the New Testament speaks of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. And he's pictured in heaven as seated at the right hand of God because it's a posture of rest and assurance and victory. And the imagery there is whenever a king or a ruler would go out to a battle, when he would be successful, he would then come back and sit upon his throne as a proclamation that the work was completed, that he fully conquered, that nothing was left undone, the battle was over, the war was won, and that's why we see Jesus seated at the right hand of God. 
because the battle against sin and the war against the powers of death and hell were fully conquered by Jesus. And so he's seated at the right hand of God because he's completely confident in the sufficiency of his work. Look, be encouraged this morning. Jesus, he's not pacing heaven worried about you. He's not walking back and forth going, I hope what I did was good enough for him. And, and um, sometimes the way she acts or the way he gets, he, he's not doing that. He is fully confident. He who began a good work is going to be faithful to complete it. He's fully confident in the sufficiency of his work. Yet here Stephen is receiving this revelation right before he's murdered. And yet this unique thing in the Bible, we're told he sees Jesus not sitting, but what? Standing. Standing at the right hand of God. And he's astonished by it. That's why he says in verse 56, outwardly, look, exclamation point. I see the heavens opened and the son of man is standing at the right hand of God. I think the image here is King Jesus rising from his throne out of great appreciation and respect for his faithful servant to kind of welcome him home and to honor him as his king. You know, the picture I see kind of taking place here is as Jesus watched his servant, he saw Stephen's life of faithful service and ministry and the things that he did. And now this ultimate scene where he's about to be murdered for his faithfulness to Christ. And he's aware what Stephen's enduring for his dedication to the throne of God and his love for Jesus. And and, and Jesus is watching all this take place. And now in this moment here, as Stephen is about to be murdered for his faith, I imagine in heaven, there's almost this silent moment that probably takes place. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, who's the king, he just gets up from his seat to just kind of give this moment of reverence and honor, perhaps to all the hosts of heaven, the angelic realm. Can you believe what he is doing? Can you believe what he's willing to endure? And and in this show of respect, he stands up. And I don't know, maybe it's quiet in that moment as Stephen's about to come into the eternal dimension and maybe even Jesus. And maybe all of heaven, who knows, the cloud of witnesses begin to erupt. And it's almost as if Jesus kind of leads this standing ovation to welcome his faithful servant into heaven, seeing what had been done, appreciating it and kind of here just welcoming Stephen, no doubt with that indication as he stands to welcome him into heaven. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And what a wonderful reminder, a beautiful scene showing us Jesus takes note and is very honored when we faithfully serve him. That he sees everything that is done, the dedication, the commitment, the works and labors of love that are noticed outwardly and the things that never get seen. The times when Stephen early on was faithfully just waiting on tables and he's back in the food pantry making sure all the labels are straight on all the cans so they can be read and nobody sees it being done and nobody's appreciating or get, but, but Jesus sees it. Do you see the way he stacks cans for me? You see how he cares about everything he does? And, and Jesus taking faithful notice, you know, what a wonderful thing that Jesus sees your dedication and your faithfulness and who knows, who knows what the entry is going to be like. And you may think, oh, well, the Lord's not too impressed. And you know what? Who knows if perhaps your mind's going to be blown 
That in that last moment, all of a sudden, you get a glimpse of Jesus. That he's not sitting there kind of distracted running the eternal kingdom. But he stands up for you. And he says, I've been waiting for you. So proud of what you did. I know it's hard sometimes. But those choices you made and you kept faithful to me and you kept serving me. And imagine... Imagine all of that just being so worth it. That's why as a Christian, we want to be yielded and living fully under the influence of the Holy Spirit because like Stephen, that we might be faithful to Jesus and like Stephen, perhaps sometimes as we're living fully yielded to the Spirit like him, we might be more prone to see things a little more spiritual and eternal and less temporal. That God might reveal things to us at times and let us see what life is really about, a heavenly focus. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Our light affliction is but for a moment, but is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So wonderful to live fully yielded to the Spirit. One of the benefits of that, again, just being more conscious of what really matters. What's to come? Not what's happening here on this earth. Now remember, the religious leaders, as this is going on, they are just growing in their fury towards Stephen at this point. They're already gnashing their teeth at him. Then he looks up into heaven in a blank stare and he starts saying to these people who are irate with him, Hey, look, I see the heavens open and there's Jesus who you want nothing to do with. And he's standing there in the glory of God. I mean, this, but this just pushes them over the edge now. This is why at this point they are so incensed. Verse 57 says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ah! And they ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city, and stoned him, it says, at that point. So they just, again, scream in frustration, raging anger. It says they, they plug their ears, they drag him out of the city. And when they get him out to the city's edge there, it says they cast him out of the city and then they stoned him. Now, I don't want to sign up for being executed in any torturous way. But if you genuinely consider being executed by stoning, that's a pretty cruel and barbaric way to be put to death. To be stationed in the center of a circle of a group of people and then all of a sudden them to just start picking up decent-sized rocks and just throwing them at you with all of their might, hitting you in the head and the body and everywhere. Again, just continuing to do this until you are actually stoned to death. I mean, the pain of that process. And again, here's Stephen. What's he doing? Suffering greatly for Jesus, just like his Lord did, because he's yielded to the Holy Spirit. He's willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and his faithfulness to him. And consider as well, on the other side of that, the one doing this to execute someone, the religious leaders who are resisting the Holy Spirit. I mean, look to the extent this goes in their life. They're the ones doing this harsh thing. Again, to who? A righteous man. This is a good and righteous man. And yet their hearts have become so hard and so cold because they're resisting the Holy Spirit. And this shows us again another outcome of the fruit of a person who resists God's Spirit. They then become yielded to the full control of their human spirit, which is sinful and depraved and capable of unthinkable forms of evil. You know, the Bible tells us in Titus 
3, that apart from the Holy Spirit ruling in us, it says our human spirit is inclined to be foolish, disobedient, deceived, living in malice and envy, and hateful toward others. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3, that men apart from the Spirit ruling in their life will be unloving, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That is doing whatever pleases themselves, no matter what it means to hurt, harm God or people or anyone else. That's the, that's the outcome of being yielded to our human spirit. And that's not an exhaustive list. And when we're not yielded to the Holy Spirit, like these unfortunate religious leaders angrily resisting the Spirit of God, there's no telling the capacity of darkness that we can go to and what our human spirit is making us capable of doing. Now, as they're stoning Stephen to death, look at verse 58. It goes on to tell us, as they're putting him to death, it says, the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, look down chapter 8, verse 1, we read, and it says, Saul was there consenting to his death. So, here we're first introduced to Saul of Tarsus, who will one day become the Apostle Paul. Once he's converted. And at this point, Saul's present with the religious council of leaders at this point who are murdering Stephen by stoning at this moment. Paul, it seems, is present with them. Saul, excuse me, I'm going to mix his name up multiple times. But at this point, he's there watching it all. He's been witness to it. As I said last time, maybe he was a part of that particular synagogue where all of this storm arose from, he's been disputing with Stephen, they've arrested him, they've interrogated him, he heard Stephen's whole sermon, he's there in the midst of all this, and now it says they lay their garments at the feet of this young man, we don't know how young he was, but he's a young man at this point named Saul, and the Bible says Saul was actually consenting, agreeing to Stephen being put to death. So as they're stoning Stephen, they have long outer garments. They're taking off their outer cloaks so they can move more freely. They're sweaty. It's a hard process to murder somebody with stones. And they're all laying their coats at this young man. Maybe he's a teenager. They're saying, Stephen, watch our cloak for a minute. And he's watching this whole thing, consenting to it, and no doubt agreeing with it all in the same hatred and animosity because we know Saul of Tarsus had venomous hatred towards Christ and Christianity until the day that he was converted. Now, here's what's phenomenal to think about. Yet in the midst of all this, as he's experiencing this whole event we're reading about here, what Stephen does, how Stephen responds, what Stephen says, it's all being implanted in Saul's heart and mind. And it's all going down into his conscience. And that would be the seedbed for what the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ would use later on to convert Saul's soul. Remember what Jesus says to Saul of Tarsus? Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That is a stick with a nail on it, always prompting you to go forward because he couldn't get this out of his mind. He couldn't get these words and what this guy did and his faith in Christ. He, he just couldn't dismiss it. And it was goading his conscience. And look, that's phenomenal to think of from this way. Here's Stephen. He's yielding to the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, he's being faithful to Jesus and his sphere of influence, and he had no idea how far-reaching the impact of what he was doing was going to have. He had absolutely no clue that Paul the Apostle 
was potentially going to get converted and have this incredible impact for Christ because Stephen was willing to be a real faithful table waiter and then ultimately just to speak faithfully about Jesus and to the very end be faithful to Christ. And he never knew that just this one person was going to be so powerfully influenced by the Spirit. And look, this morning, you may have no clue. Oh, what's the big deal if I'm yielded to the Spirit? What's the big deal if I walk in the Spirit? I just work at Kmart or I just have a crazy family. or uh, uh, what? Listen, you have no idea. What if there's just one person that is the Spirit's working through your life, your influence is going to radically change them or they may ultimately get saved because you are willing to be faithful to Jesus and walk in the Spirit. And you may have no idea how the Holy Spirit could work through you to impact just one other life. Well, look as our text concludes, verse 59 and 60, we see Stephen in his final moments here. It says, And then they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So notice the Bible describes his death process there in verse 60 by saying he fell asleep. So probably a reference in one sense to him fading out into unconsciousness as he's dying from the stoning. But even more than that, more important, the Bible uses this metaphor of a believer in Christ for death as falling asleep. This is a metaphor, an analogy the Bible uses for the Christian, the believer in Christ, when they experience death. The Bible uses the picture of falling asleep, not the idea of soul sleep that some try and say where you live in a limbo state forever. The Bible knows nothing of that. What it is a reference to is a picture of how when a Christian, a follower of Christ, dies, it's the same thing as like when a person goes to sleep. They fall asleep and then they wake back up in a completely different state. And you know what that looks like? Because you looked in the mirror this morning, right? You fall asleep in one state, you wake up in a different state. You're refreshed, but you look horrendous. Same idea. When a believer dies, it's like going to sleep. They shut their eyes in this life and they wake up in the presence of God. It's like going to sleep. There's this peaceful, restful transition. It's not this terrifying, scary, overwhelming experience because the awareness I am right with God exists in your heart and it's just a transition peacefully like going to sleep. To be absent from the body, you become present with the Lord. You depart and you're with Christ. Now look what Stephen did up to the moment that he breathed his last breath it says there in verse 59 as he's being put to death he was calling on god praying to the last moment saying lord jesus receive my spirit so stephen with peaceful assurance says lord receive my spirit reminds us much of jesus statements remember when jesus died on the cross he said father into your hands i commit my spirit and again here we see another biblical reference to the death process of what happens both for the saved and Christian person as well as really for the unconverted and unsaved person who doesn't want to go to heaven is that our spirit as described there he says Jesus received my spirit our spirit which is the eternal part of you that will last forever somewhere the real you your spirit will be dismissed from your body See, you have an eternal part of you, your spirit, where you 
are going to exist forever and that is housed within this temporary earthly body like a tent and tents don't last forever they're not permanent dwelling places we're given a physical body so whereby in our spirit which is eternal we can express ourselves to one another talk and touch things and experience this physical realm but every physical body has an expiration date on it doesn't matter what you do to try and take care of it or whether it tragically is destroyed quickly in some horrible way or whether you get sick and gradually die the physical body has an expiration date and when death happens that's what happens the spirit the eternal part of you departs from your body and it enters into the eternal dimension the important part is where it goes and that depends upon your response to the holy spirit of god if you choose to respond to the Holy Spirit and you humble yourself before God and you ask Jesus to be your Savior and to forgive you personally and you call upon the name of the Lord, then just like Stephen, you can peacefully say, Lord, receive my spirit. It belongs to you. It's, it's yours. It, belo- it already belongs to you. And you can peacefully... If you choose to resist the Holy Spirit and not listen to what he's telling you about your need of Christ and salvation, then you're instead going to hear Jesus say to me, Depart from me, I never knew you. Again, the Bible says Jesus said that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, hell wasn't even created for humanity in God's heart. But if people don't want to go to heaven, Jesus has to let their spirit go somewhere. So he allows them, if they don't want to go to heaven have the only other option which is a place of eternal torment and damnation and darkness and pain and eternal forever and ever suffering with the devil and his angels it ain't no party so there's the option how we respond in this life determines where we depart to for the afterlife well right before stephen dies look what he says it's phenomenal he says lord verse 60 do not charge them with this sin. Again, much like Jesus. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, again, I look at this. Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit, you must be to do something like that, despite brutal mistreatment, painful, barbaric treatment, people are murdering him, and he displays the character of Christ. He shows love and kindness and forgiveness even to the people who are actually murdering him on the spot he's able to show the love of jesus he pleads in prayer out loud lord show mercy to them don't hold this sin against them now listen i am telling you that had to blow people's minds how could you be doing something that barbaric and cruel and all of a sudden this guy peacefully looks up and he says lord receive my spirit and right before his eyes he says and lord please don't hold this sin against them have mercy on them. That's his last prayer he utters before he dies. That incredible love and forget. That perhaps to me was maybe one of the most powerful ways that you can see in Stephen a contrast to being yielded to the Holy Spirit. Because that's supernatural. I'm sorry. You accidentally cut me off on the freeway. I want to run you over, right? I mean, <laughs> it just... And this guy shows the love of Christ and kindness. Because see, that's supernatural. That's supernatural. People don't respond that way. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, people are going to harm us in this life. Whether purposely, whether consciously, whether accidentally, people are going to offend us. They're going to upset us. We're gonna, this, it's a part of life. People are going to sin against us. It's a fallen world. 
the question becomes, how will you respond to them? How will you respond? Will you respond in a Christ-like way? And I'll tell you something. If you respond in a Christ-like way, that'll probably be one of the most powerful contrasts that the Spirit of God is at work in your life because that's not normal to show love and forgiveness and grace. But that can be done if, like Stephen, you bow your knee and you yield to Jesus' help and the power of His Holy Spirit working in your life. Amen?